I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Interview with the Burton Bionic. Well, that just spoiled who our guest is, but it could at have least been, it was a metal It man. could have been Tim Burton. Could have How been you know? Tim Burton. Yeah. How do you know Tim Burton's not on? It could be. Yeah. could be the NASCAR driver, Jeff Burton. But no, yeah. it is Dr. Judd Burton, yeah. who is a historian, anthropologist, academic, professor, author of the book Interview with the Giant, and many more things. Mm-hmm. And after a two-year absence, he is back, and he's going to talk about a topic of interest of us called The Shadow of Pagan Worship Over the World's Destiny. Gee. And should be one of those classic weird future quake shows yeah. that everybody enjoys. I enjoyed it. So with no further ado, here is Dr. Judd Burton and talking about neo-paganism and Wicca. And we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom BNE611 Bionic. You know, you're trying to put some hidden code, and I know what you're referring to this week. And I'll let our <laughs> listeners guess for that. It has absolutely nothing to do with our wonderful guest, though, because we have a voice from the past returning. It's been, I think, a couple of years since his last visit, and uh, somehow he must have had amnesia about it and came back anyway uh, after the traumatic experience on Future Quake. Uh, I hope your your reputation wasn't too damaged, and that's, in fact, because I'm talking about uh, Judd Burton, who is a historian, uh, anthropologist, and author of a book we've reviewed previously on Future Quake called Interview with the Giant. And we're going to talk about a different topic, uh, something else that's part of his broad array of experiences uh, that he has, and that is uh, the shadow of pagan worship over the world's destiny. And Mr. Burton, I just want to tell you it is great to have you here join us again on Future Quake. Yeah. Fantastic to be here. Let's don't wait two years next time. <laughs> okay. All righty. Well, yeah. I should say Professor Burton. Excuse me. Um, oh. It it is it is wonderful to have you back here uh, again. It's been too long. There's so many things we could you know want to talk about with you, but I tell you, there's so many things going on in the world in so many directions. It's hard to cram everything in a future quake. Uh, uh, but for a lot of our new listeners, and we've had a good number of new listeners in the last two years since your last visit, could you very briefly tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background and some of your credentials and the subject matter that we'll be discussing? Sure. Uh, my name is Joe Burton, and I've uh, I've got a, a, a rather varied academic background. I have a bachelor's degree in history uh, from Hardin Simmons University. Also, have a master's degree in anthropology from Texas Tech, and I completed my Ph.D. in history from that same university uh, last year. Finally graduated in August. Congratulations. So now I can call you Thank Dr. You. Burton. <laughs> Dr. You. Burton, that's awesome. Great. Uh, now we can just go around the table and say doctor, doctor, doctor. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But, so, uh, I, yeah. I'll, go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, about your range of interest and background. Well, my primary focus has always been in religion uh, and a, a broad ethnological sort of approach to religion at that. But I I did my 
uh, a specialization at the doctoral level in Greco-Roman culture and early Christianity. Uh, but I, I've, I have a background in, in uh, world religions, uh, but I, I've also studied European history. I've studied um, American cultural history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a, a, a plus all, all of the anthropological tools that I have that I used in, in large part to write the, the last book that I did, Interview with the Giant. Um, but I've, I've done field work in archaeology as well. I've, I've done work in Israel. In fact, I ended up doing my dissertation uh, on a site that I helped excavate in Israel, Manias, which we talked right. about uh, at some length on the, the, the last program. and uh, will probably end up being pertinent to what we discussed tonight in some form or fashion. Okay. Uh, but I... Yeah, I, 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 I'm happy that that I actually took the route that I did. It, it gave me a lot of tool, a lot of research tools, um, in, in a, a broad perspective. And my, my biblical background um, certainly throws a lot of that into focus. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, the, the prior show that you did with us really got my wheels turning, and it definitely influenced the trajectory in several areas that I have been looking into since then so it certainly left a legacy with me and i know a lot with our listeners as well too and right. uh i just want to uh mention too you're a you're a bible believing christian right jesus loving christian absolutely absolutely jesus christ crucified and resurrected absolutely and you still made it through the academic world in spite of it right uh i did um although you know a lot of uh, a lot of my peers don't yeah uh, but uh, I, my my grounding was so strong that uh, in, in a lot of ways it, it brought more of what I believe into focus. Mm-hmm. So if anything, the academic process for me gave me a lot of clarity. Well, I'd just like to reiterate that for our listeners, that people like you and Dr. Heiser, Michael Heiser, show that if your faith is grounded correctly, that... Uh, you you can go through a rigorous academic process, and uh, in a secular even a secular context university, and you can do just fine. And in fact, I feel like we need witnesses in those areas, and we need people with those kind of credentials because it gives you a unique voice. And I find that of a lot of our churches, they're just exclusively a pipeline to send their young people only to schools of their denomination, for example, or things like that. And that's fine. There's a place for that. Sure. But we need people like yourself to go out there and mix it up where the field is and to actually get a credentials that are respectable uh, to give you a case where you can get the ear of people who are not reached by the church otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, truly. Really, uh, there, there, I mean, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. There's definitely need for that. Uh, let, let me... Uh, jump into our topic here about uh, Wicca and uh, neo-paganism. You know, the discussions of the topic of, uh, for example, Wicca are available at places where you have talked about it on Derek Gilbert's show, for example, on A View from the Bunker. And I know a lot of our listeners listen to that show regularly, and so uh, they're already available online. And I don't want us to just rehash a lot of that. So I want to go on into some maybe some material that's not been fully covered uh, in interviews like that. 
as well as even commenting on some research that I've uncovered and get really an educated academic uh, viewpoint on some of the issues that, that I've wondered about. Uh, c- can you sort of start our discussion by discussing if you think of any forms of pagan worship uh, have, and those are basically non-monotheistic, I think, for the most part. But uh, if any of those have actually survived the Constanti- Constantinian era of, you know, the Christianization of the West, where it became sort of the official re- religion of the empire, and, and if if you think any did survive from that phase, if so, in what kind of form did they survive? Well, certainly. Uh there's historical evidence and archaeological evidence that suggests that that's very much the case, uh, that there were pagan traditions uh, that survived, uh, in many cases, centuries after uh, the Constantinian era. Uh, for our listeners, uh, you know, what, what we're talking about there is the, the Christianization of the Roman Empire uh, that took place under the Emperor Constantine uh, in the early 4th century A.D., and uh, at, at first, um, it's a, a, it passes, gets lost past its sanction and at least tolerate Christianity. And of course, under under the auspices of Constantine, Christianity does become the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire, um, which gets into all sorts of complexities in its own right because you know the, the Roman Empire at that point was split. Uh, into an Eastern and a Western Empire. Uh, but be that as it may, um, Christianity uh, was adopted uh, as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And you know, there's, there's all kinds of debates as to whether Constantine did become a Christian himself or didn't become a Christian. Uh, it is known that he wasn't baptized until uh, he was almost dead. Um, And there's also evidence to suggest that he remained a a faithful practitioner of the cult of the Sol Invictus, which he'd been a member of. Um, Consequently, his his primary festival was on December the 25th, um, Hmm. the date which now celebrates the birth of Christ. so there are all kinds of rabbit trails that we could go down and, and mm-hmm. talk about Constantine, but I, I'm sure that we need to, to sort of move past that. But suffice yeah. to say that, that Christianity does become the ascendant religion under Constantine in the Roman Empire, um, and the paganism does not disappear. Um, public paganism certainly begins to recede at this time, as a result of the sanctioning of Christianity throughout the empire. Um, we learn, uh, well, even from uh, St. Augustine's uh, City of God, you know, we learn that the that paganism is still very much a viable force in the Roman Empire. Um, and, and so public paganism becomes less, and what I mean by public paganism is that most of um, most of the paganism practiced, with the exception of, of uh, mystery religions that you had to be initiated into, uh, most of the paganism practiced throughout the Roman world at the time was very public. I mean, you found shrines and temples on every street corner uh, to every mm-hmm. possibly possible imaginable deity. Uh, and so public paganism will gradually recede over the next couple of centuries 
uh, into the background. And so um, I, I, I can speak to um, paganism surviving in the East, certainly because I, I, I did quite a bit of research on, on that topic uh, for my dissertation. And what we find uh, in the East is, is that there, there are records of, of of more private and let's let's call let's say domestic uh, paganism something that's practiced in secret or in the home. Um, there is, or or at the very least, in remote areas uh, in the wilderness or in some kind of a grotto or something. We do find that happening in the Greek East in places like Syria, Greece proper, Asia Minor, uh, well into the sixth and seventh centuries. Um, Perhaps even more than Constantine, it's the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, uh, the early 6th century, who begins to uh, uh, destroy a lot of the old uh, pagan schools, uh, the academies, for instance, uh, that, that had preserved classical education up to that point. And with that, with the destruction of the schools, paganism receives even further uh, into the background. Um, we we can read about um, these groups of people that, that show up in uh, saint lives and hagiographies um, called eth- the Greek word is ethnophrenes, uh, and it, 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 the connotation there is essentially that they're unconverted or unbaptized. So they may have been missionized, but they're they're not totally mm-hmm. converted uh, at this point. And mm-hmm. so yeah, paganism survives. Um, in some places, very intact, uh, quite quite late in the first millennium A.D., um, there are pockets of, of paganism in Syria and remote Egypt uh, that show up even after um, the beginning of the, the Islamic era in the 8th and 9th century. Uh, there are hmm. records of, of these groups practicing. Um, uh, and if people are interested, there's an excellent work on this called The Survival of Paganism in the Byzantine Empire. Uh, by a scholar named Frank Trombley. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's extensive evidence to suggest that paganism lasted long past the Constantinian era. Can you give us some example of some specific belief systems that were present in some form then that maybe even here in the modern era have been preserved or suspected to, even if they've maybe morphed a little bit? Well, that's the trick. That, that's that's where these examples get kind of tricky because um, there really is no cohesive belief system in the traditions that survive. There are roots because, of course, they're going to be based on older, uh, in this case, you know, Greco-Roman paganism. Um, in the Greek East, you're going to find that con- conflated and syncretized with uh, Semitic paganism. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in some cases, uh, you find find it mixed with uh, um, early Christian traditions. Uh, so it's it's very it's often very syncretistic. And in fact, the paganism that survives into the Middle Ages um, is is almost almost wholly syncretistic uh, in, in kind of the way that uh, Bodan is or Santeria is today. Uh, you have the, mm-hmm. the indigenous religion, religious element on one hand, for, uh, largely from Africa, and then you have it mixed in with Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and you have a very similar sort of thing uh, in the Greek East at this time. Um, and so it's very hard to weed out um, formal traditions because they're so protected. Uh, mm-hmm. These are not now. Now that paganism is, uh, especially after Justinian, uh, now that paganism is under the thumb of uh, uh, Byzantine law. You know, these guys don't want to write a lot of this stuff down. Um, yeah, and so we we have to rely in, in some cases on um, second and third hand accounts that we find in, in documents like these hagiographies that I mentioned a moment ago. These saints' laws contain a lot of important ethnographic data, uh, but they're usually just uh, nuggets and bits and pieces here and there that you have to kind of collate and put together uh, to form a more cohesive picture. But even then, it's an incomplete picture. It seems like to me, then, probably a better description would be is there's a spectrum anywhere from some pagan beliefs who made its way into the, quote, Orthodox Church, Mm-hmm. Then inflect it Im- impacted our our feast days, our saints, when things like this occurred, other kind of things. People have argued at different time that paganization of the church influenced that. And then you have probably some groups who were Christians in practice, but used some of the Christian language to hide more pagan viewpoints and ideals. Sure. And uh, I think what a more sophisticated, yeah. Uh, a more sophisticated example would be even like Rosicrucianism, even though that's, I think, a little late for what I'm talking about. But something where you've, you've got a lot of things that are really somewhat non-Christian in the beliefs, but it's housed in Christian words and language. Uh, and then, then you get all the way to the people who are totally driven underground that want to maintain a, a pure uh, pagan belief system. And I, I presume that some of this stuff is complicated, the fact that people were illiterate through most of history. Therefore, even being able to write down some of this stuff was hard. And like folklore and things like that of people out in the countryside, it was mostly just word of mouth how stuff was handed down. That's exactly right. But it, um, it, but even so, um, uh, if even if we're dealing with strictly an oral tradition, that that doesn't necessarily mean um, that uh, the tradition can't be held up generation after generation because. Um, well, one of the things that I talked about in my, my book was that um, oral tradition has proven to be a, a can be potentially be a very accurate medium for the preservation of, of uh, mm-hmm. information, and that may uh, maybe, and in fact, in Mama, this is an idea that I've been toying around with. Uh, maybe that unbroken line that everybody's looking for uh, mm. in witchcraft, but we you know we can't put our finger on it because they didn't write it down. Mm-hmm. Now that was common even in Judaism, wasn't it? Wasn't the Certainly. the oral law tradition a key part of preserving their faith for a long time? Certainly, and it's you know the power of the spoken word is emphasized over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with the fact that the Hebrew language wasn't even uh, in written form until about the 10th century BC. Uh, so. It's not as if the the intellectual culture of the Hebrews um, existed in a vacuum for the millennium prior to that. Of course it didn't. They were active in telling these stories, and um, they all knew the, the law by heart uh, because they had to memorize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know from other, other traditions that, um, speaking of paganism, um, the Druids, 
had an oral, uh, oral tradition. They, they, the only time they wrote anything down was in transaction, and it was usually in Greek or Latin. Um, they mm-hmm. had to study for, you know, in some cases over a decade uh, to enter into their profession, and they memorized, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lines of, of these uh, lines of three verses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just incredible extensive knowledge. Um, hmm. We find out now that people that lived in prehistory, you know, had uh, amazing knowledge of complex mathematics and the movement of the stars. Um, and so, an oral tradition doesn't preclude sophistication by any stretch of the imagination. Hmm. I wonder if that's somewhat similar to the procedures they preserved uh, in Freemasonry for going through the different grades and ranks. Of course, they have written material you can read, but basically, it's a means by which you have to learn it enough that you can recite it in front of fellow members to be initiated to higher ranks. Have they preserved a little bit of that protocol? I would say so. Um, again, most most people who get into Freemasonry don't really understand what, what it is that they're being initiated into. And mm-hmm. that, that, that is what it is. It's a, it's a mystery religion. You're initiated into it. You really don't even start to learn. <clears throat> most people people don't really begin to take it seriously until they've gotten past the 33rd degree, uh, yeah. if they go any farther than that. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that some of that is, is definitely preserved, except um, in the case of, of uh, a Freemasonry, we're, we're looking at something, um, we're looking at a different kind of, of uh, paganism altogether. It's 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 a, a ritual magic, uh, mm-hmm. almost a, a thalmaturgy, a higher <laughs> magic. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's debated, I'm sure you've heard it said, about whether n- new neo-pagan expressions today are legitimate or not, mm-hmm. uh, the religious philosophical movements. And it seems like to me they use a litmus test to whether they can have some kind of continuous, unbroken connection to the ancient past. Uh, or are they just a you know modern invention? Or are they reviving you know long-buried rites that they've discovered new information to, 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 re- to restart? Does it really even matter whether these movements, the new ones today, have an unbroken line of practice? Is that really essential to their power and effectiveness? And, and the example I give is, is for example, uh, I, my understanding is compliance with the Torah was broken for a long time in Israel until Josiah found a copy of the law and reinstituted it. And uh, it certainly didn't delegitimize their exp- later expression of, of obedience to the Torah. So, so in, in in real practice, pragmatically, does it really matter or not if they have a connection to the ancient past? I would say not. Um, I, I I did my master's thesis on the pagan community uh, when I was studying the anthropology of religion, and that that involved a a, a two track research uh, research model um, i would i researched the the modern uh, traditions that were in this group because it was kind of an eclectic group you had people from Wicca, you had people who were who were uh, group practitioners you had some who were solitary you had druids you had uh, ritual magicians um, you know there, there was a sprinkling of of the, the gamut of, of paganism, I guess you'd say. Um, so I, I had to study the modern 
practices and, and of course interview the members and and uh, look at the history of, of neo-paganism, but also had to, because they make, many of them do make the claim that there is this unbroken line. So that necessitates looking at uh, medieval and ancient traditions uh, and the deities that they purport to worship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as a historian, I've always maintained that it's, it's, it's very difficult the point at an unbroken line, but again, alluding to the, the former part of the question, it really doesn't matter um, because of the, the strength and the numbers that they have already. Um, what is interesting is that this is um, it's a revival of ideas. It's a re- it's a it seems to be a reinterpretation of of what we have left over about these ancient pagan religions. Um, many neo-pagans are willing to admit at least that, that, okay, there's a lot of, there are a lot of gaps, you know, in the unbroken line theory, but, you know, between now and, and whatever, the Middle Ages or, or antiquity or whatever. <clears throat> but it really doesn't matter um, because people who practice neo-paganism just with, um, you know, people who seek out any sort of spirituality, they find something there um, that speaks to them, and then they and then they follow it uh, for good or ill, uh, as the case may be. But as a historian, I've just strictly historically speaking, I've always been bothered by the claims that many of them make that there is an unbroken line. Um, well. To, to demonstrate that to an audience, you need evidence, and that's a pretty weighty claim. Uh, again, there's no there's no witch's journal or grimoire that points out the entire history of mm-hmm. an unbroken line that's purported to have existed. I would mm-hmm. argue that it's not necessarily an unbroken line, but there there is some continuity of tradition. Uh, but an unbroken line is very hard to hard to point out. I just want to know, Judd, um, which of the neo-pagan movements today, and there's a number of them today, do you think, if any, that really tap into real dark power in principalities and, and legitimate forces from the spirit world? I know this is a conjecture on your part, but in, in those who you think are just window dressing, uh, sort of playing the game, and, and why? why? Why do you think certain ones do and certain ones don't? Well, this question um, speaks to a theory that I've been working on over the past year uh, that I've called the primal witch, and it all it goes back to my research on the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, uh, when the watchers uh, came down and, and mm-hmm. created the line, the first generation of giants, the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talked about the, you talked about this on our show previously that uh, we have people like Azazel or Sabjaz and others that I don't know if I pronounce that right, but they actually supposedly the Book of Enoch brought teachings on how to use roots and cuttings and things we associate with with witchcraft and taught that even back before the flood occurred. Precisely, man's undoing. Okay. Yes, precisely, and that that's what I'm getting at is that. Um, that that is the that's the genesis of which what we would 
generally dub as witchcraft um, today. In in my in my uh, my assessment, that that seems to be where it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, and I'll, I'll get back to that in just a minute. But to, to answer uh, the first part of this question, um, what neo-pagan movements are are actually delving into the darker powers, or are they, you know, those that are making contact with with entities? Um, I think that these are the most the most dangerous. The um, the the ones that are practicing uh, a magic along the lines of um, Aleister Crowley mm-hmm. or Michael Aquino. The, mm-hmm. A lot of these guys are, are solitary practitioners. Um, and what's interesting about Crowley um, and Aquino to to an extent is that uh, at least in, in in the case of Crowley. Uh, Crowley was a, a, a brilliant guy. Uh, he was a very adept uh, mathematician, and that's one of the things that you find is that this thaumaturgy, higher magic, uh, higher ritual magic, is often a combination of um, the occult and the science. Um, which so, so the real which powerful stuff is not just some yokel. That comes yeah. some Yahoo doing it. It's yeah, got to be a not, serious. Yeah, yeah, you're going to find a person in the castle who's you know, well groomed. You know, that's extremely yeah, interesting because I'm I'm kind of a comic book nerd, uh, or used to yeah. be. And you know, they've had all these Marvel comic movies come out. You know, Spider-Man and Thor yeah. and Captain America. And the common theme, in fact, uh, at one point, uh, Captain America's arch rival says it explicitly. He says, uh, "Magic isn't really magic; it's science." Yeah, we just don't know how to right. do it, you know. And I'm just bringing back the old science. It's just merging it. Yeah. And I and I know Crowley always talked about actually treating it like a scientist, or he th- he did it experimentally. Mm-hmm. Yes. To try to yes. sort of cause an effect using experimental principles and things like that. Exactly. I assume Jack Parsons used the same technique that he used yeah, in rocket okay. science. JPL. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's sort of sort of interesting, is I don't know. I don't think he had any college training at all. He had a ninth grade education. Ninth grade education, yep. but was was not only you know the biggest genius in the world on rocketry all of a sudden there at Caltech, but uh, you know his undoing. He lost his security clearance with the FBI because he was planning. He was actually being uh, interviewed by the Israelis to come go over work at Technion University to set up and use his expertise, you might call it. I don't know if it was only just physical sciences or not, but was actually going to use it there and lost his security clearance. So there's there's a lot of interesting connections. Uh, would you consider a person, even like an Alan Moore, falling in this category? I think so. Um, like I said, most of these guys um, either demonstrate an acumen that's, that's based in, in in education or... Well, it's an education, whether it's at a university or under the tutelage of one of these entities, and that's something that I'm getting at. Um, this is the exact model that we find in the Andaluvian world. This is what the Watchers are doing in exchange for genetic access. Mm-hmm. They're teaching, okay, they're teaching men, women, whoever, um, 
this mixture of occult sciences and the hard sciences. Um, and uh, Azazel, as I pointed out in our last interview, is the most culpable. He reveals these mm-hmm. mysteries of heaven that are not supposed to be revealed at that time. Um, and if you look at the model of of witchcraft that survives into, let's say, the Middle Ages and the early modern era. Um, the witch is somebody who is taught uh, by a demonic entity. And I think that mm-hmm. that is, a, whether whether it's in a group setting or coven or as an individual, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that is very, very telling. Well, ironically... Because, because it's, yeah. the original, it's the original model. It's ironically we mentioned Jack Parsons there, and uh, he he may have actually been uh, doing some of his stuff for Azazel, or, or I, th- I think in prior show you've conflated him with Pan, mm-hmm. and and we know he directly addressed Pan and did a little ritual every time they did a rocket test, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know this is a, sort of a step off the path, Judd, but. Um, when I have talked about sorcery to other people's before, and I'm certainly not a, an, an academic expert like you are in these subjects, but from from what little I've, I've understood, people have asked me for a definition of it, and the best I could define it was the use of artificial substances or artificial means by which to alter people's reality. And in the past, it's been t- typically, you know, drug roots and other natural substances that were actually applied to. To, to then open up doors to other realities and, and right. alter it for people. But, you know, now we live in a day and age where we're not restricted to chemical means, although we have very effective chemical means. In fact, we've made man-made ones like LSD and, and other kind of things. But but we also have other scientific ways of altering reality. We have auditory, electromagnetic spectrum, alpha waves, even psychology, all these other kind of means that we have. Have you come across any of the neo-pagan groups, and since you were mentioning these individuals who are real adepts and and highly educated, that have actually taken these new types of sciences of reality alteration and have integrated them into some kind of ritual, entheogen, religious process and combined them? Uh, Personally, I have not. um, But in my research... um, I'll run across people who they're usually academics. Um, people who use use um, uh, psychological techniques, and, and it can be something as simple simple as um, you know you talk about manipulating reality, um, and it could be something as simple as getting another person to do what you, you know what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Well, we can do that with subliminal messages. Right. Um, that's moving towards altering somebody's reality. If we can do that by just flashing popcorn advertisements, you know, in a movie, um, then you you have to you have to know, or you willingly turn a blind eye to the fact that there are professionals in this country and elsewhere that are working towards using much more sophisticated and insidious methods. Uh, mm-hmm. We could go on and on about the the, uh, the psyops mm-hmm. divisions uh, in our own country that have tried to develop those sorts of mm-hmm. things, and 
which Michael Ar- Aquino Ar- worked in. Exactly, yeah. yeah Michael Aquino was, was involved in that, yeah. He was, uh, in fact, I, I believe he was in charge of the Psyops Division in the United States Army at one time. Well, I'll tell you a little tidbit I came across that's sort of interesting. If you ever watch Fox News for any length of time, particularly when they had the prior wars, the Gulf Wars and things like that, there right. was one of the generals that they would have that would look over the, the where the armies were and push them across the table, you know, and the big brass multi-stars was uh, General Paul Vallely, and he was a regular on Fox oh, yeah. News. Would, I found an I found a paper on it was sort of the Bible on psyops. And it gets pretty pretty spooky reading about what they say in here. And it was written by Paul Vallely, uh, who was the head of the Presidio for the PSYOPs division. His co-author was Michael Aquino. Yeah. And so here's a guy who's a you know well-known guy to the public working directly. And he handpicked Michael Aquino uh, from, from what I read in the document itself to work on these things. And I think Aquino would be an ideal kind of guy to merge the latest breakthroughs in the science of what we would call sorcery with modern technology and, and put it in some kind of ritualistic process. Oh, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's the, those, are the, those are the caliber of people. That, that's what I'm saying, harking back to your other question. Yeah. I think th- those are the real, I mean, if we, if we want to call them witches, fine. Okay, um, okay. That's so not those, not not so much the ladies frolicking around in the covens out in the in the forest. Less huh? though, I, I, not that you're not going to find find uh, serious adepts amongst their ranks as well. But um, I was talking to somebody the other day about this justice very thing, um, and my I, I finally just came out and said, look, you can worry all you want to about these other neo-pagan traditions, and certainly there are negative influences there. I'm not going to lie about that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the people that you really need to be worrying about are the adepts, the, the yeah. solitary practitioners, the, the ones who have uh, insinuated themselves with, with uh, branches of our, our government infrastructure. Um, By the way, Jed, have you ever seen a movie, it's in a black and white movie, called Night of the Demon or Curse of the Demon? I don't believe so. I, I highly recommend that. In fact, uh, you usually will find it in, in just, I think you can probably get it on Amazon.com or a lot of times cable will have it, you know, where you can download it off of the movies for free. Sure. It's a movie with Dana Andrews, and it's just talking about this kind of adept you're talking about. And I think they probably captured the, the true feel of what these guys are like. Because uh-huh. it was concerning several gentlemen who are like you, they're academics that write that write uh, academic papers just on these topics mm-hmm. of paganism, Satanism, these kind of things. And Dana Andrews played an American who was a high-level skeptic, and always okay. found other explanations for it. Well, one of his colleagues was in England was very concerned about someone who in his midst, who he determined was a high-level sorcerer. And uh, he met his ends before the big conference in England happened. And so Dana Andrews comes over and his, his daughter, this man's daughter, finds him out. And even the Indian and several others there say, hey, this stuff is real. And I highly recommend you catch it. It involves runes and Stonehenge and uh, some techniques that you may have read about things from the 19th century. 
sure. uh, techniques, but it's a very well-acted dramatic show. I recommend it to our to our listeners that I think you'll get a real feel about what it means for an adept uh, to be able to even control weather locally and other mm-hmm. kind of things like this. And it's it's not a corny kind of movie. And I, right. I I suggest you put that on your list if you want to kick back and relax and get away from the office. Uh, and you can watch that. <laughs> I don't know about relax, but uh, yeah. Either that or the next Ernest movie, whichever, you know, you can get your hands on one of the two. Get well, you to forget things. You um, can't go wrong with Jim Barney. That's right. You know what I mean. Um, we mentioned Pan, and and I want to talk, I, I, I want to move on to talk about goddess worship, because that's something we don't talk about much in Christian circles. But I, I want to mention quickly about Pan, because you, you brought Pan up. Um, uh, he goes... Possibly all the way back to uh, uh, the time of Azazel and sure. prior to the flood, uh, possibly as a identity and a burial place there, an area where you were doing your research mm-hmm. uh, there at the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, but his worship continued on through Greek and Roman era, uh, and then we even mentioned Jack Parsons again, uh, venerating him. But he's also mentioned in modern Wicca movements, mm-hmm. uh, which typically have a goddess figure they worship, but several of them have both a goddess and a god figure. Sure. Um, do you think the worship of Pan, in a, in a really serious sense, still exists? And in, in what kind of forms do you find most interesting of it? I uh, wholeheartedly believe that it still exists. Um, and it's interesting that you allude to uh, my contention about Pan and Azazel being the same deity, I, I do believe that they're one and the same. And having said that, I think that Pan shows up, and even neo-pagans will admit this, uh, Pan shows up in world mythology uh, under a host of names. Um, the name may be different, but the attributes and the role and the function of that deity uh, are very often the same that we find uh, in Pan. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, um, we find uh, uh, these haunted fertility deities, um, such as the Celtic Pernunos. Uh, if you look at him in Celtic folklore, he's, he's basically a carbon copy of Pan, um, mm-hmm. except he has stag horns instead of um, instead of uh, goat horns. Um, the same could be said of uh, Cocopelli. Uh, that we find amongst many of the, the uh, mm-hmm. yeah. blowing peoples in the American Southwest. Um, you know, we could we could sit here and spin the globe all night and find these things. The point mm-hmm. is, is that they're uh, they're archetypal, uh, they're perennial feature in world mythology, uh, and so uh, Pan uh, is often often the name that is invoked to represent this male fertility spirit, the divine masculine, in other words. Uh, and many, many groups, many covens uh, will acknowledge uh, not only the divine feminine principle, but also the divine masculine. And more often than not, uh, it's, it's this archetype of, of pain. And that's mm-hmm. why I say um, we're talking about the same God here, liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what kind of impact do you think their worship has in this physical world and in the spirit world? Well, definitely, I think that it has a, a very 
not necessarily, well, it is, I guess you say it, it is a measurable impact because they're invoking thing, old mm-hmm. Diana or whatever deity they happen to be invoking. Um, they're trying to open that door. They're trying to commune mm-hmm. with those spirits. And communing with, with spirits is just another way of of saying that they're trying to make contact with these principalities, with these, in some cases, watcher angels. But uh, certainly demonic spirits at the very least. Um, When you have that going on uh, on such a wide scale, because neo-paganism in general is a fast-growing religion, uh, yeah, it's going to have a, a measurable impact uh, on society. Look at where we, just in the case of the United States, look at where we are now compared to 50 years ago before neo-paganism was widely practiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think even if you look in uh, Arlington National Cemetery, you'll find pentagrams on tombstones, uh, military members, and of course now we have pagan chaplains, mm-hmm. and even I think a worship circle there at the academy, Air Force Academy. Uh, Even their church looks like some type of a pagan thing. Well, yeah, if, yeah, it's pretty spooky. It up, yeah, it doesn't yeah. look like any sort of church that I've attended. been in it. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was it was pretty. Did they try and tie you to the altar or anything? It was it was. Well, I, I'm not going to tell you. You're not briefed. And you're not initiated for me to tell you what I was doing there. But great. Your security course, has been revoked. You know, yeah. Judge, I, I know somebody else very closely who went in to a place that was one of the top prep schools for the young people of the extremely wealthy in this country and people like the president's kids and presidents of other countries go to. Yeah, like Pablo and, Escobar's kids going to school with the Bushes right. and all that. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to say where it is, but uh, in one of these schools in their chapel, they actually have the all-seeing eye over uh-huh. the pyramid on the ceiling of the the chapel where they worship as well, too. So a lot of the stuff is is right under our, right under our nose. The, sure. the reason why I asked that about Pan was... If if he is actually Azazel, and we believe that he is chained in the abyss in Tartarus to a future time, it makes you wonder how he might weigh his spirit, maybe in power or somehow do something for the for the people here. Of course, there's other demons and other deities that can assist, you know, in, in venerating him sure. for the time in which sure. he's released again. Uh, maybe in Revelation nine, I don't know. But um, uh, I want to talk about. Um, Again, this uh, goddess worship, which is something that is really not talked about much in Christian circles. Get your opinion on it from your study. Um, Do you believe that biblical Judeo-Christian theology and teaching, and and I want to say that in the most holistic sense, in the most Mm -hmm. academically broad sense possible, can it facilitate the consideration of... We, we use the term divine beings here as not being God, but as being superhuman in the spirit world, that that there can be such beings that have feminine attributes, that at least we would perceive them as such, because we know most of world history has has viewed some kind of feminine goddess persona in most, most cultures. Can, can the Judeo-Christian world actually facilitate that possibility? that such an entity having feminine attributes could be present in the spirit world? Um, yes, I think so. Um, I think I think what you're saying is 
um, can can divine beings, in, in other words, the angelic host, right? Uh, can they can they manifest as feminine? Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think um, something changes because now we get into the question about interdimensionality, and I know this is more your realm. Uh, Mike, you have you have uh, Dr. Future, excuse me. Uh, you have a broader background in the hard sciences than I do, but uh, something changes when uh, these divine beings leave their realm. Um, something changes about their physical. They, be- they become physical, in other words. Mm-hmm. They, they don't. It seems like if we're to believe. Um, uh, for the Book of Enoch, for instance, um, they retain their knowledge and their power, uh, but their their nature changes somewhat. Um, we don't really have to look very far into the the New Testament to find out that there is a degree of theatricality and certainly deception uh, that is inherent in uh, the demonic hierarchy. Uh, and not to mention uh, water angels as well. Um, and so they can appear, manifest in whatever gender they, they choose, uh, it would seem to me. But, and this is very much in line with the reports of uh, incubi and succubi uh, from the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, um, people being visited by um, uh, female or, or male demons and assaulted mm-hmm. in some manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, I think that uh, they they can manifest in whatever whatever form they want to. Uh, the Bible tells us that they could even manifest as an angel of light, as one of mm-hmm. Yahweh's angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now that, you you know that, most Christ, most Christians that keep a pretty tight you know view on things uh, on what on what they consider would would be very doubtful of of a feminine type angelic being because they only see what they think are male angels mentioned in the Bible uh, that, that have male attributes or were mistaken for men for example um, what what would be your your response to them in that regard those are the those are the instances that we have recorded um, those are the ones that are preserved in the biblical tradition uh, that's not to say that there aren't and this, this gets us into the um, the validity of world mythology. Mm-hmm. If we're to believe, and again, I, I've, I've discussed this on a number of shows, but uh, even mythology has a degree of historicity, sometimes a great degree of historicity. And the farther back that we go uh, towards the dawn of civilization, the more blurred the line is between history and mythology. Um, ancient peoples didn't necessarily look at that in uh, an intellectually compartmentalized manner. Uh, mythology was simply a means by which you record something. Uh, it, mm-hmm. might, it might be somewhat literary, uh, but those are the instances that are recorded in the Bible. Uh, if mm-hmm. we turn to um, the mythology of these other cultures, well, then we have we certainly have a host of, of feminine divine beings. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I don't think that that, well, I know, I know that that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, in contradiction uh, with the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. Just it's not mentioned in the biblical text. Well, certainly um, female um, goddesses, idol goddesses like Asherah are mentioned right. in the Bible. Right. Exactly. The Bible doesn't really, I don't think, makes a comment whether they're male or female. It doesn't really right. add right. commentary. It just acknowledges that they're worshipped uh, there. But you see characters like um, the great whore Babylon, mm-hmm. which may just be pure metaphor, or there may be something more to that in the spirit world. The same thing with the uh, the one you see, I believe it's in Jeremiah, that's flown by the by the women who have storks' wings, mm-hmm. and they say this is wickedness inside the ephah with the lead cover on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these are further indications of feminine type characters that are sort of in the supernatural realm, are they not? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that I found interesting in my studies is that I see so many connections in, in again, not being an academic in the area, but between, uh, obviously, Diana and Artemis, which was the Greek and Roman version of the same character, but but the connection to Isis and even to, to Hecate, or, or I'm not quite sure how that's pronounced correctly, but, uh-huh. uh, but there's a connection of magic. There's a uh, connection of being a liminal goddess, uh, open to, to doorways with keys and fire being associated and these kind of things. And what was interesting was that, is it, is it, is it Hecate or how did they pronounce in the Greek? Hecate. He- Hecate? Uh-huh. I've never heard it pronounced. That's one I've never heard that way. Hecate, yeah, I'm going to take it. One of my professors used to say you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> okay. Well, Hecate, okay. Um, uh as I understand, she was a titan, uh-huh. and if, if if I understood my thought, mythology right, she sort of reneged on the other titans, which I think have often been sort of conflated with the with the fallen angels that were judged in Tartarus, uh-huh. and that she threw her her assistance to the Olympians, and and because for that she was not in prison like the rest of the titans, and remained, um, I guess, in the air or the sky wherever she served. Do you think there's any shadow of that story and something that really occurred sometime in our ancient past? I think so. I think there's at least a, a, a grain of truth in it. Um, we learn about her from primarily from the Homeric hymns and Heshed's Theogony. And Heshed is, is a valuable source, I think, in studying, um, in studying the antediluvian world because... Heshed provides, not only in the Theogony, but also in another text called Works and Days, provides a, a model um, of events before the Great World Flood and uh, all of the, uh, the the races of people that lived on the earth before the Flood. And also, um, he talks about the, the, the relationship between humanity and, and gods and goddesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a um, there's even a Noah figure, uh, Deucalion, um, in, in Hesh's work. But getting back to Hecate, um, there likely could be a grain of truth, especially um, because Hecate, uh, often by by name, by Hecate, um, is venerated as one of the primary goddesses of, of witchcraft. Right. Uh, certainly in the Middle Ages. Um, this probably has a lot to do with the survival of, of 
religious rites associated with Hecate um, in the eastern parts of the, the Roman Empire that I mentioned at the top of the hour. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, the, you would also... I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, that um, our preservation in oral culture uh, probably uh, probably alludes to the fact that um, there was this overarching feminine deity, um, or or at least a divine being who who masqueraded uh, as a feminine deity and shows up as other goddesses like Artemis and Isis and uh, Astarte and uh, a whole host of the other mother goddesses that we find are around the, not only the Mediterranean rim but around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, now as I understand, Artemis or Diana is also the other main ancient popular goddess that is repeatedly mentioned in the various schools mm-hmm. of of Wicca. Mm-hmm. Um, they still have like a modern Dianic tradition right now. I wanted to talk more, but our our time's getting away. And uh, they mentioned the McFarland tradition and Temple of Diana and others that have always showed this connection to Diana as the the hunter at nighttime. Uh, but but a lot of times their temples seem to be the same with Hecate, I believe, and uh, Diana and Artemis. And this has really got me thinking about. Uh, and some of our listeners have seen some of my work in this about. Um, Wormwood in the book of Revelation, who who actually is used as a feminine gender term, uh-huh. which can just be an artifact of the, the language, I don't know. But um, but the word actually used there is absintheon, uh-huh. which the actual, the, the, the plant that they made the absinthe drink from, and I think right, that right. absinthean wine was also used in Dionysus worship, uh-huh. was called Artemis absintheon. Uh-huh. And so there's a connection to Artemis and this this absinthe and what's mentioned as wormwood, the wormwood plant and the wormwood that's in the sky, and it appears to me to be a proper name. Uh-huh. And, and and you see in Revelation 8 that she is called down and she has she comes in fire mm-hmm. and she comes holding keys, mm-hmm. which my understanding these are symbols of Hecate herself. Mm-hmm. Is that is that correct? Uh yeah. Um, I think you've you've hit upon something there, Mike. Um, boy, that's because really she, that had that had never uh, occurred to me. Because she, she's an actual liminal goddess that's supposed to be a key over doorways. And, and as she comes down, and the reason why I find this interesting is that when you see in these other forms like Dionysus worship, where they took the same uh, wine, this uh, Absintheon Oinos wine was that they became basically enraged in other minds. You know, the Manaeids, and they would go and tear people apart. Mm-hmm. And, and and as some of our listeners who've gone through my talks have seen, when it says it comes upon a, a third of the waters, uh, the word hydros, Greek, is used there. It's the same sure. word that's used in Revelation 17, where the angel says that these waters are nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Mm-hmm. And it says after that they become bitter. Mm-hmm. Or like the word means engage, enraged or indignant, and it mm-hmm. says there's great bloodshed after that. Mm-hmm. And then you see it just a few verses after that, an angel with keys goes over and locks the the pit for Apollyon, mm-hmm. which I assume is her brother, or at least represented mythology as her brother, mm-hmm. or Isis, you know, Isis Osiris kind of relationship. Right. Right. Do we have a kidney a possible key? to the ancient mythology world and a fulfillment of what they foretold in the future 
possibly in that passage in Revelation 8 and 9? No, I think so, because I think the Bible and uh, its related literatures have have proven valuable in interpreting world mythology. Um, I, I would never have stumbled upon the relationship between Azazel and Pan, uh, had it not been for the Genesis tradition and, and the extrapolated tradition from Enoch. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I think the word usage for um, certain Hebrew concepts um, in the New Testament are very interesting. Well, not only the New Testament, but also the, uh, uh, the Septuagint, for instance. I've, I've mentioned before the use of the word gigantis uh, by the, the the Hellenized Jews that translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. That's a very specific word, uh, and it conveyed exactly uh, where the, the giants came from. They had a divine parent and a human parent. The Greek-speaking audience would mm-hmm. have instantly known that. Uh, and so I think that the um, uh, the choice, we, we, we have to be very careful, especially when we delve into the original language, I think that we have to be careful to look at uh, the words that the authors are using. Um, and I think you've, you've hit upon something here, uh, Mike, because, um, you know, when you, you, you talked about the symbols of, of Hecate, I instantly thought about um, the torches and the keys that are often associated mm-hmm. uh, with her. And, boy, you've, you have got the wheels turning right now in my mind. <laughs> Because those, I those think I could be doing some digging on my own right now. Well, those words are used literally in in those passages, and it says she's thrown down like a torture of fire. The other word is a is a torture lamp, mm-hmm. uh, w- which are the kind of words as I understand it, and also the keys. Uh, this angel, a few verses later, shown, and I assume it's the same angel, mm-hmm. uh, has keys. I think in some translation the word he is used, although I don't see that in the original language. The gender mm-hmm. may, may be implied some other way, but. Um, but I just find that a very interesting fulfillment of something that's been foretold, not only in the ancient languages, but even implied in other systems like Freemasonry, other means, that there, that there will be this release from the underworld and that this could actually be facilitated. And I'd, I've never seen anybody actually seeing that Wormwood would be cast down as part of an invocation. That, that possibly because a few verses later in verse nine, in chapter nine, it says that they still did not repent of their sorceries or their murders. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I could see furthermore that the massive death that occurs at the end of chapter eight, uh, when she's cast down and it says that many die upon the earth would be part of a mass blood sacrifice that would facilitate opening the abyss. Sure. In other words, and this that, would make the keys available to make the abyss open. Certainly, and blood always seems to be a part of those kinds of, of rituals. Blood needed mm-hmm. to manifest. Um, and Aleister Crowley certainly would agree with that as well, too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, wow. You, you know, there's been, there's been some other um, historical mentions uh, in, in religion of a feminine type divine figure and one of them that I came across really interesting was the heavenly mother talked about in Mormonism and my understanding is when it's been asked what her name is they say that it's actually withheld and it cannot be released at this time 
Do you know much about the Mormon teaching on the Heavenly Mother? I'm not uh, um, intimately familiar with it. Um, my my instruction in uh, American religion uh, exposed me to that, but we didn't delve a great deal into the the nuances of the religion. Um, but I'm only passionately familiar with the uh, Heavenly Mother theology. Mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> Different religion there, I oh, think. Oh, sorry. Uh, Ethel Merman? I don't know. Uh, well, you, you know, there's there's always been talk in the last century or so about the Marian apparitions. Right, right. Um, in some of the descriptions they say of what they saw in the sky, sounds much like some of these goddesses that we just talked about right. and how they make themselves manifest in the sky as well. Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility, I know some people might be offended at this conjecture, but a possibility that if, if there's something legitimate that people saw, and there certainly a lot of eyewitnesses to several of these, was that something like one of these goddesses masquerading themselves in a Marian kind of guise or even being mistaken for them? Do you see that as a possibility of what's, what could have gone on? Oh, certainly. Um Certainly, absolutely, I see that as a possibility. Um, the uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the uh, apparitions that that uh, took place in Portugal uh, mm-hmm. that were associated with Mary. Um, I know Ilya uh, Marzulli has talked a great deal about right. those, um, but yeah, I. I I tend to think that, that that's the case in the in a lot of these mass uh, Marian apparitions, particularly mm-hmm. when people talk about how she's clad and how she's she's you know bedecked. Um, right. It's it's in a lot of cases it it, it is very Greco-Roman. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost like well, you sounds like you're describing a statue in a temple. Um, so I think that that's very Possible. In fact, I, I might go so far as probable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Ellie Missouri, from what I've heard, he's he's often said it's either a UFO type demonic deception or something like that. Right. And and I just wonder if it's just uh, a plain old visitation of the old goddess, <laughs> old goddesses just reappearing, or maybe getting ready for a future reappearing and just sort of getting the stage set. You know, there was always this connection with being thrown down. Again, thinking about wormwood because. Even in the book of Acts in Ephesus, uh, I believe her image was actually thrown down from heaven. They believed mm-hmm. that they that they had that they had in their possession. Uh, you know, as they crawl, you know, cried out, "Great is Diana the Ephesians!" And in fact, their response when Paul came in was on a smaller scale, similar to what I described in Revelation eight, uh-huh. as far as them getting enraged and becoming uh, just basically bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was just sort of a last-minute deal that saved Paul. I'm sure it was a work of God, but sure. you know they were surrounded in the stadium, I believe, uh, when the whole city just sort of, uh, you know, went in sort of a daze itself. It says they were, you know, equally enraged as well. Um, do, do you um, do you foresee that some type of mass evocation of entities like this may happen in our future as we get into the last days? 
as uh, part yeah. of a larger pagan influence in our society. Yeah. You know, sort of an end game. Is this the kind of end game that they're looking for in the pagan community? Well, I think that um, I think that as our society becomes more pluralistic, uh, and certainly we've we've become so, uh, we've become very pluralistic at present. But I think. Um, as our society becomes more pluralistic and we start um, we start thinking about uh, our, ourselves as a global society. Of course, you know, that, that phrase, the global village, has been thrown around for several decades. But as, as we begin to see that and, and we begin to see more of a, an anything-goes sort of attitude, well, if it's a, which is something that we, we see even in our own society, as long as it doesn't, you know, it's totally qualified. As long as it doesn't hurt somebody, then you should be able to do whatever you want to. The more and more we see that permeate our own society, then yes, I think that we'll see more uh, attempts to to do this in a more public fashion. And so it's it's almost a reverse of what ha- what happens in uh, Constantine's day. Mm-hmm. The paganism becoming more and more public. Um, and on the surface, it might even not look like paganism. It might look like um, civil re- civil religion or or, or just mm-hmm. strong nationalism. Um, there, Robert Bella wrote a book called Civil Religion a couple of decades ago, I think, um, in which he talks about this American theology. You know that there is a mm-hmm. there is a public religion that almost borders on the kind of religion that Rome practiced, you know, the mm-hmm. state religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, right. I mean, we, in, in, a, in a very vague way, we, we invoke, uh, you know, a generic God, uh, our money, mm-hmm. in, in God we trust. Well, but, uh, you know, I mean, I know we, we know yeah. who we mean, but what does that mean right. to the neo-pagan? What does that mean to the Muslim or the Buddhist? Um, well, you mentioned you mentioned um, that it may not Im- immediately look pagan, and that made me think of the French Revolution, where yeah. you had these very educated secular leaders overthrowing the influence of the church. And mm-hmm. what do they do immediately afterwards? They need something to worship, so they set up a goddess. Mm-hmm. So there's a goddess figure that these educated people, and they start executing priest and other religious leaders and setting up a pagan goddess to worship. Oh my gosh, and, yeah, the, the regime that replaced the aristocrats under Robespierre was worse than the nobility in the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they didn't call it the reign of terror for nothing. Mm-hmm. And and we do have a goddess. You, you mentioned about this, uh, you know, in God We Trust and our civil religion. It actually sits in New York Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we have a goddess that overlooks you know, our riches uh, in, in New York City. And uh, it was done who, by a Freemasonry group in Paris as a gift to the Freemasons in America, if what I understand of history is correct, and for the American people as well, too. So there are those subtle influences, like you say, that sort of work our way into our civil religion as well, that yes. we call ourselves a Christian Christian nation, as if there were such a thing, uh, when really the handprints of... of you know uh, the the pagan influence, and Chris Pinto has done a good job in his documentary showing things like the apotheosis of George Washington and things like this. That you you do not find 
imagery of Jesus Christ or Judeo-Christianity generally in places like Washington, D.C., which is sort of our, our temple area of our country, uh-huh. you actually find these pagan symbols and deities throughout it. Sure. Which, again, Enlightenment people might say, well, these these people are just metaphors and archetypes representing freedom or or, you know, other virtues of society itself. But you certainly don't see those embodiments from a Judeo-Christian world. Uh, it, it's a completely different argument there. Um, you know, I, I, another aspect of, of this that I find interesting is, is, is I've done just a small bit of reading on this. I read a lot about Mithras, who uh, had a lot of similarities to Christianity in their practice, although I guess it was just males that actually did it, and had these very unique worship centers, these... I guess they were underground, oh, yeah. domed. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's it's interesting because um, the the main one in London was just bought by Rupert Murdoch, I believe, and he is actually moving it to its original place. Uh, it was actually brought above ground, and he's buying the property and putting it back to its subterranean place. But uh-huh. it, as I've studied more about this, I found out that many churches were built on top of them. Certainly. And there mm-hmm. were there were suspicions that people were actually going down in these places and actually doing these kind of rites, uh, you know, when nobody was looking. Uh-huh. And there's always been books by Malachi Martin and others that there was Satanism going on even amongst the cardinals at the Vatican and things like this. And you know, it's hard to verify a lot of this kind of things, mm-hmm. but we certainly see an example of it in I believe it's Ezekiel eight where Ezekiel is taken into the temple, and there's all sort of wickedness being done by the temple leadership. And every time he goes in from one layer to the next, it gets worse and worse and worse uh-huh. uh, of this. Do you suspect uh, that even in our some of our churches today in America that this kind of activity goes on, and that there are, there are sort of secret closet groups of pagans doing things not in their goth clothing, you know, far away, but actually just interspersed in some of our churches itself. Mm-hmm. I would hate to think that that kind of thing did go on, but I'm also a realist. And, yes, I would think that especially the, the larger the church community gets, the more susceptible it is to that kind of corruptive influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had close friends of my own who, who work in this field, in the trenches, so to speak, who have in fact said as much that that, that type of thing does go on. And I've heard a number of people uh, in the church who have come on in uh, various radio programs and, and have, have said that. Um, one of the more prolific figures who has come out and said that is uh, Sean Manchester. Um, hmm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but no. he's, he's sort of no. the... Uh, He's, he's kind of the intellectual um, heir, I suppose, of Montague Summers, who uh, was a, a, a writer on the occult. He was also a minister, uh, but he wrote several books on, on vampires, witchcrafts, and demonology. And uh, Bishop Sean Manchester came on, uh, this had to have been over ten years ago, or all, almost ten years ago, came on Coast to Coast, uh, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. and uh, spoke several minutes on, on that subject, that this kind of thing actually was going on uh, inside the church. Uh, mm. Well, in, in all get, the denominations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
the the charges leveled against Catholicism have been around for a long time. Right. I've, I, I, in in researching some of this, and both you guys seem a lot more knowledgeable about it than I am. But one of the one of the ways to get um, your I guess you would call it a certification or whatever in certain kinds of Satanism is you have to become a Roman Catholic priest. Really? Yeah. 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 I, I don't recall which sort of roads that all that oh. happens, but well, it's hard to judge by William Schnoblin because he's everything. <laughs> he's got them all. He's, he's got, got his ticket punched. Everything, and then yeah, all more things yeah. that I never even heard of. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you, you know, I um. I mentioned Malachi Martin because he talked about this stuff going on behind closed doors. Sure. And, and and there's been several others. I think there's probably been some pedophile rings that have broken up that, you know, sadly sometimes churches were groups sure. of that. Well, and the they get that, into usually satanic ritual kind the of guy stuff. That was the, one of the guys that was involved, the key people involved in the the Franklin case was a was a was like a Roman Catholic priest or chaplain or something that worked at the boys' ranch. Okay. So uh, and yeah. you know he was the guy pipelined right. hundreds of kids out of there. Right, and and like we said, I don't think the Roman Catholics anyway have a lock on this. I no, think they just happen to get Protestant more denominations. Probably. You find you find other strange things like this going sure. on too. Yeah. Um, but uh, and you know sometimes it maybe doesn't have to be people dancing around with horns on their head or things like this. Um, uh, I was working with Chris Pinto on a documentary about something that was a purely pagan, uh, very famous pagan um, monolith uh, that was constructed in a very, very conservative southern town that was basically, you know, populated by salt-of-the-earth Baptists, you know, raised like me. Uh-huh. Um, but they all happened to be Freemasons, and, I'm, and I don't mean to pick on Freemasons, but they all went to the same churches, uh, were pillars of their society, and did not see anything inconsistent with what they were doing. But then again, they held they they were in groups and societal groups. They were able to acclimate themselves that the two could coexist, mm-hmm. that a Judeo-Christian belief system could could be right along with that, and there was no harm, no foul uh-huh. in doing that. And uh-huh. I and I really wonder how prevalent this is. And and rather than me jawing, I want to ask you for all of this talk. And we could have talked much more about some of the modern day. Um, uh, witch activities and what's talked about in the witch cults in Europe and Stragaria and all these things I found fascinating. Uh, the, the new forest coven and all of the stuff that's come out of that possibly. But ultimately, where we are here and now, right now, what, what do you think is the real threat to society from the neo-pagan religions in the future, if any? Well, I would just reiterate that the the real threat comes from the the, the more thaumaturgically uh, associated traditions, the the ritual magicians, um, the people who follow paths like Aleister Crowley did, mm-hmm. and, um, Jack Parsons. Um, those are the people that pose the real danger because they apparently. Um, through either through instruction or, or by whatever means, actually had the ability to open these portals mm-hmm. and talk to these beings and receive instruction from them, um, if not bring them through. That that is is the big threat. It's where it's are they now? In. Where are they now, Judd? Where, where? How can we identify them? Um, 
Are you talking about the deities or those people? No, those people, the 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 adepts. Well, that's 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 part of the difficulty. Some people you can uh, you can pick out. I, I think that it's it's the Alistair Crowley's and the Jack Parsons that are easy, easy to pick out because they write and publish and they're personal. Mm-hmm. Alistair Crowley, even in his own day, was a celebrity, uh, an infamous celebrity, but he was a celebrity nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the easy ones to pick out. Um, Michael Kino, um the danger comes from all of the ones mm-hmm. that we can't. Well, let me ask you about Michael Aquino here. Um, he was a high up in NSA, our, our top spook group of of uh, intelligence. We know the CIA has gotten into some bad, bad stuff, just the stuff we know about, like MK Ultra and mm-hmm. things where they basically created mind slaves. Um, a lot of people died through their LSD experiments. Um, lots of work in mind control. And then we see clear activities by our intelligence and military groups with things like remote viewing and other things to try to open doorways to another field of consciousness and understanding. Uh, we did a show with uh, Ray Boucher, who's a, I believe he's a Lutheran pastor, but he was one of the top ufologists that was approached by some people in the defense and um, intelligence communities who happened to have Christian background, who they came and sought him out in Lincoln, Nebraska, where he works at the university, and basically did a data dump on him and said that activities are going on right now that are basically resorted from high-level physics now into ritual magic by our government. And things are coming through. And he was as skeptical as you as I were. Uh, had to go back and verify their credentials and things to see they were legitimate. And he had forwarded the documents he got to me. And having worked in the in the military for a couple of decades myself, they appeared legitimate to me, uh, the information they sent him. Do you suspect that this kind of activity is going on in a larger scale in our military and intelligence areas, uh, you know, possibly other places, Russia and elsewhere as well, to get some kind of extra advantage, and could they be part of what's opening up some of the doorways to the ills we have in the world today? Again, nobody want nobody in their right mind would want to think that about the people that are charged with that protection. But <laughs> I, the reason I think the reason I think that that that's the case is because you you obviously have committed researchers who are digging this up this stuff up. Um, Secondly, uh, again, I have friends who are working in the trenches, so to speak, uh, who I have no reason to believe that they would tell me this information if it weren't true that say that that's going on. Uh, and thirdly, um, I, I'm somewhat haunted by a call that I heard on um, Coast to Coast when Art Bell was still the primary uh, mm-hmm opposed to the show back in uh, about 97 or 98. And you guys may be familiar with this. It's it's become fairly popular. Uh, but uh, an employee of, of Area 51, that's what he claimed to be, called mm-hmm. in, obviously very disturbed, very frantic. And he reported that... Um, that they were, in fact, making contact with these 
beings that are masquerading as aliens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he said they're not what they say are. They're extra-dimensional beings. And they've been in contact with us. They were in contact with a predecessor um, to the, uh, oh, what do you call it, the space program. Uh, yeah, they were in contact with the predecessor to the space, pro- space program after World War II. Uh, which is very interesting because that's also the time frame of the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. Um, but this call, I remember the first time that I heard it just made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that that's just proof positive, but there was something about, there was something sincere in this guy's voice. And what, yeah. what was also interesting is that the, the show, uh, he got cut off. Um, he said that they were going to triangulate on his position and cut him off. And they cut him off in mid-sentence. And uh, even the studio lost power at that point. They had to shift the generator to come back on the air. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember vaguely hearing a story, a reference to that incident that actually occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, um, um, Reverend Boucher uh, was not someone who was out promoting himself he wasn't out getting this he was just quietly he he, he worked with the publishing house in the university of nebraska and also uh um you know worked at a local church as a pastor and um um but i found out about him after we had interviewed linda moulton howe on our show uh-huh. and she had referred to him and had high regard of him being an honest high integrity person that did good research in the field and uh, when i went and went through her book i found uh, a lot of this information that she had forwarded some of these people to him because they wanted somebody who had a Judeo-Christian understanding, um, you know, but that was trustworthy and did good science work. And um, when I was able to track him down, he verified all this, provided me the documents. And uh, it's very interesting in, in her book, and he reiterated this, is that they said the beings that they saw, if you wanted to see more about what they had encountered, and they mentioned a few extremely rare books on demonology, on Mesopotamian demonology, that was only available in a couple of Ivy League libraries. Uh-huh. It was a very, very exclusive reference. And after he was on our show, it was, I don't know, six months, something like that, we found out that Nick Redfern uh, was evidently going down similar paths mm-hmm. and had gotten some information on this and also had found Ray Boucher. And it was a fluke that we contacted him when he did but had interviewed him and got the leads and was able to talk to a number of these people in the military field and others, and they confirmed this. And some of these had a Christian background and recognized that this was now a spiritual battle that had opened. And they really believed that the Jack Parsons incident was was a key thing, Uh uh, that it was a scenario you described, that an adept had had put a doorstop in an opening and it had stayed open for some period of time. so so knowing these kind of things, and I mentioned Alan Moore because he, he's, he announces himself as a practicing magician. And I can't think of anybody else in our society today who's had more impact on the public consciousness. Uh, from things like V from Vendetta, I was just reading an article today about how people in the Occupy movements are all wearing the V from Vendetta mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the Gaffalk mask, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, right, the Fox mask. And... Um, uh, having done, uh, see, The Watchman, which mm-hmm. is definitely what I think uh, an occult eschatology uh, within Watchman, and some of of these works. And, again, he's a practicing magician, but people hang on his every word. Sure. Um, 
what should we do to protect ourselves? And I, you know, I encourage our listeners to be activists. Don't just look after your own skin and your family, although you need to be doing that. But also see as an activist what you can do mm-hmm. to to try to diminish the influence of these uh, powers in our society and replace it with the with the force of good through Christ. What can we do, given this reality, to address it? Well, that you know that. That offers another, uh, you know, there's another medium by which people are influenced, and that's popular culture. And Derek mm-hmm. Gilbert and I have had a number of conversations about this very thing, about what role popular culture, in this case, graphic novels, comic books, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, not that he's not a talented guy, but there's an, ob- you know, there's a very disturbing tenor to things like The Watchmen. Um, right. Things like... Um, there are themes that come out in popular culture that seem to be prepping us for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best thing in terms of activism, I think, that people, that Christians can do is, number one, again, to be discerning. Go back to the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? Or what could the Bible say mm-hmm. about it? Um, you need to be prayerful about these these things. And once you've dug down and you've got hold of the truth, once once the Holy Spirit reveals this stuff to you, you need to share it with people. Don't keep your mm-hmm. trap shut. Um, uh, now, I'm not saying that you, I mean, enter into conversations with people diplomatically, but you need to engage the material with them. Share it with them. Don't, don't keep it just for the protection of your own family, because other people need to know this too. They need to know, amongst other things, that they can take authority over these entities in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, it's not power that we have in and of ourselves, uh, but it's power that's given to us through Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And right. it's, it's not rocket science. Um, and it's there for our protection. And so mm-hmm. in terms of, there are all kinds of levels of activism, but the beginning of it has to be the sharing of this with your neighbor, with your friends, mm-hmm. with co-workers. Right. Um, it, and, you know, there's a lot of people who find spiritual warfare distasteful, and they would like to stay away from it. Uh, it's unsettling. But I'm afraid it's going to come to us. That if yes. we don't go on the initiatives, it will seek us out. It will. Um, and, you know, we may be looking at that that transition, you know, right now. Uh, but people shouldn't look at it as, as something to be swept under the, under the rug because... If the model we're supposed to follow is Jesus, um, much of his ministry was spiritual warfare. It was balanced with meeting people's, you know, needs, psychological needs, in some cases physical needs. Um, but to turn a blind eye to that part of, of Christian ministry mm-hmm. is to deny what we were really called to do. Right. It's the third leg of his stool of yeah. ministry. Yeah. When he was here, I mean, and a lot of times he did them all right at the same spot. There was right. time for teaching. There was a time for giving the doctrine about the kingdom of God. There was a time when he told the disciples, these people are hungry, feed them. Mm-hmm. Or people had a physical ailment that they needed right. healing from. And then there was a time right. when demons or other people showed up. Either it was a demon to come out of somebody or the demon was in a religious leader and he exposed it for what it was. Mm-hmm. So... All those things were going on simultaneously, you know, when when he was doing this. And uh, 
uh, I'm, I'm afraid the time that we, we've got to acknowledge it and get engaged right now. And as I've mentioned to people before here, when you when you look at evocations, and I sometimes I wonder if there's even evocations during Super Bowl halftime shows, and and things that we have on popular television, that what what you have to have are willing participants, uh, and a lot of times they will use some kind of means of um, artific- uh, modification of our senses. It doesn't have to be drugs. It can be the food that they give us. It can be what they put in our water. It can be auditory. It can be visual images that they give. Uh, there were just stories today that about people are having epileptic seizures during the vampire birth sequence in the Twilight movie that's out, where the Bella woman finally becomes a vampire and they have a baby and... Uh, now that could be just a fluke that they have some kind of shocking lights or something like I that. I hate but, when that happens. But yeah. people are actually falling to the floor in convulsions during this kind of thing. In the theater. In the theater, and we don't oh. we don't even know a half of what we're being exposed to. Right. Um, when we need to guard our hearts and we need to ask Jesus when we're in prayer to please protect us and empower us to protect other people. Um, anything else you can suggest for us on uh, how to deal with this new world we're in? Well, my my advice is always draw, draw close to the Father. Um, you draw close to mm-hmm. the Father, He's going to draw close to you. Um, yeah. Study, make it a priority because the Christian life is a discipline. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of us are more some of us are more drawn to studying anyway, um, but part of the part of the Christian walk is is dis- the discipline. To actually study the work, go see what it says about this thing. I like yeah. the way that L.A. Marzulli talks about the Bible, the guidebook to the supernatural. It mm-hmm. is the guide. It is the guidebook to the supernatural. It yeah. sheds light on what needs to be shed and obfuscates the darkness and, and other mm-hmm. other things that you may read or be exposed right. to. But um, you talk, you talk about discipline, you know. Um, a lot of us will watch these martial arts movies, you know. And you're younger, you think, yeah, I'd like to see that guy right now. I'd like to start giving it to him and doing it. And, you know, you're not going to be so good in martial arts unless you spend many, many years by yourself hitting a sack of potatoes or doing whatever it is or whatever right. kind of discipline, military discipline you have. The same thing with football. You see some guy running football and you're excited and you think, man, I wish I could be out there. I wish I could go out there now and run football. Well... The guys who excel there are the ones who are out there running up and down right. the steps by themselves in the loneliness. Thousands of hours of, of training. By themselves. Practice. Yeah. Right. That's right. In the rain and things like that. And really the biblical Christian life is no different. The protection comes in, the, in those many, many hours in Bible study, <laughs> many, many hours in prayer I have this when vision. nothing exciting is going on. I have this right. vision, you know, like love being the most important thing. Like you've got like 20 people in a line and you're trying to hug them as fast as you can. Well... You have some different thoughts over there, Mr. Bionic. I lost my mind. I got up too early this yeah, morning. Sorry. I think you lost your mind over there. Yeah. You invoked something else. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of discipline, uh, as we as we Very wrap up here, stuff. I think you've got something that you can help people with their education and discipline, uh, Dr. Burton. Can you tell them a little bit about an institute you have for people who who have gotten intrigued about these topics 
but want to have a methodical way where, where they, they still don't do the uh, the sort of hit and miss Dr. Future approach of just uh, read a few articles and think they know something and uh, just go out there and throw out a few uh, pop culture references and think they're an expert. Somebody who really wants to know what's going on from reliable data, not from hearsay and rumor on the Internet, but methodically learn about these kind of topics in, in a good structural way. What, what are you offering to them right now? What's available? Well, the uh, the Institute of Biblical Anthropology, which I've been developing since we last spoke, uh, is now offering coursework. Um, it's an apprenticeship in biblical anthropology, and there are courses that people can take um, which cover, a, um, I, I guess, I guess you might say straightforward uh, biblical topics, but... Um, Taking them more from the uh, through the lens of anthropology, and uh, there's an apprenticeship program that includes ten courses, and the courses last a month each. You can take as many at a time as you want to, uh, but you've got Old Testament, New Testament, uh, things like that. But you, but I also have biblical anthropology, archaeology, ethnology, uh, church history, religions of the Bible, and then you can opt to take um, a couple or more if you want. You can opt to take um, a course from the growing number of special topics, electives, that I have, topics that include things like giantology, biblical demonology, witchcraft, and the Bible. And there's some uh, more conventional ones like uh, the life history of Jesus, uh, the apostles, and that list is going to be growing. I'm ever, ever expanding mm-hmm. that. Um, I'm going to include some more classes on uh, um Witchcraft and spiritual warfare, but for now we have mm-hmm. biblical demonology and witchcraft mm-hmm. in the Bible. I don't think uh, there's any interest in our audience with any of those topics. I think no. that's just totally. <laughs> what about like your best life now? Anything like that, or seven uh, principles for success? I think I, like I think I actually introduced his previous show, the previous time Judd was on this. Uh, your best life now, is dot that? dot dot, with the giant. <laughs> <laughs> So they're not going to learn principles for financial success in your class? Yep. Likely not. Hey, uh, not Dave not Ramsey, dot, 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 the demonologist. No, not Dave Ramsey stuff. I'm going to leave that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like after people take your classes, and I know, and, and by the way, people, you definitely need to take them. We're going to have a, a link at the Future Quake website under our past shows tab of the show where you can go directly through that link and uh, get to this information, take some courses. You might find a Dr. Future or Tom Bionic in some of them. Uh, well, they're, the, they're exceedingly affordable. They're only You can take them individually at $35 a pop, or you can take the whole unit uh, for $300. Okay, all right. Do you, do you give tardy slips or hall passes or anything like that? Or Well, maybe for you guys. Uh, okay. I, I can make exceptions. Do you all have a football team or anything? Uh, well, no, nope, there are no mascots for football teams yet. Okay, well, you are in Texas, right? Oh yes, in Texas. Yeah, I think the Big Twelve is needing new, new people to replace teams. So you might want to consider your institute in there. Quarterbacking, we have Azazel. They've, <laughs> they've, no, they've I got hold my breath on that one. Well, they've got Baylor in there. I don't know how yours would be that much different. So, <laughs> except you have Christian teaching at yours, that might oh, be more okay, different. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, you'd, you'd hope they would at Baylor too. Yeah, I mean, in, ideally. Um, how how can they get to that if they want to sign up for some of those classes? Uh, people can go to uh, the Institute website, and that's uh, tioba.org. 
and you just click on the courses link and it will take you to the information and you can click on each of the courses and uh, look at a brief uh, syllabus. I've got a few students that have signed up already for the next mm-hmm. unit. Um, more people are asking about it or getting interested in it. It's going to take a different kind of of uh, person, I think, to weather what's coming. Mm-hmm. And that's part yeah. of the reason behind um, the creation of the Institute. But plus, I, yeah. I believe in, in scholars having a responsibility to the general public, and I want, I want people mm-hmm. to have access to me. Yeah. Now that's T-I-O-B-A? T-I-O-B-A dot org. Dot org, okay. Was Tioba one of the ancient gods that was came down from heaven? Not to my knowledge. It's just With, an acronym. Okay. <laughs> okay, so it's not named after a no, deity no. or member of the divine yeah. council or anything like no. that. Okay. Well, hey, I recommend you take some of your students on a field trip now to the Grotto of Pan. It looks like it could be real interesting times here the next few months over there. Listen, yeah. um, I, I would love to. In fact, that's one of the long-term goals of the Institute is, is to is to go on expeditions. Yeah. Or maybe Damas- Damascus would be another one you could be a fun one to go to right now over the next couple of months. Uh, I'm afraid if Pan himself came out of the grotto, he would be overwhelmed by events in the Middle East right now. Or uh, perhaps, perhaps not terribly overwhelmed after all. Yeah, exactly. Might be just more of the same when he comes. In fact, he may go back to Tartarus mm-hmm. if he sees what's getting ready to hang out over there. But seriously, <laughs> I want all our listeners to... Uh, he comes out and he says, sweet, I see somebody left the door open. <laughs> uh-huh. These people are crazy. I'm going back to the abyss. Get this. Yeah. Um, it's it's a great opportunity. This is something all of our futurians would really, really love. Um, your books. Uh, you have an interview with the giant, right? Are there yeah. some other publications they want well, to get to I, if they want some light reading? I am uh, um, I'm currently working on a commentary on uh, on First John uh, with a translation. Huh. Uh, it, it'll, it's a historical and anthropological commentary. Uh, and I should have that out um, within the next month or so. And I'm, I'm currently working on a, a sequel to Interview with the Giant. Okay. Uh, and that that should be ready um, probably mid spring, sometime in March. Oh. Do you have a publisher for all of this work? The institute is the publisher. Uh, I've actually opted to to just publish our own materials. Okay. Um, well, be thinking about expanding your commentary to just the whole Bible and throw Dr. Heiser and and us and and. Uh, some other guys who are unqualified, you know, uh, like us in there, too. I'd like to see a Revelations Radio Network uh, commentary with Chris White and a bunch of the other guys, uh, mm-hmm. Andrew Hoffman and Peter Goodgame. We could put a good listing in there of a commentary Bible. And I'd like to that, see if Lifeway would carry that. That would be uh, that would be a lot of fun. Uh, I'd be interested in a project like that. Wouldn't it be awesome? I mean, it would. That Lifeway would look at it like the Necronomicon. That would be about how excited they'd be in carrying that book. Yeah, but that, uh, that's probably I, right. I know, I, I know, I, and, and you can't get that there at your site, right? You don't carry the Necronomicon. No, I don't. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, you have to go to Miskatonic University <laughs> site, right. I guess, to get that's right. to get to get that one. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed our discussion today. I might w- add one other little thing for homework if you're so inclined, and uh, Dr. Burton, you can uh, 
diss me if you think this is bad. Uh, something that that was a pop culture kind of thing that really got me in the right frame of mind of some of the concerns of paganism in the future as well as the seduction was the original Wicker Man movie. Uh, I don't have you ever seen that, Doctor Burton? The nineteen seventy four. I haven't, but I, I well, know the I know the film you're talking about. It's an intense movie. It it it. You it, should check it, it has out. Has a man. scene or two. It's a little questionable. Uh, there's a seduction scene in there that uh, uh, it's actually integral to the story. One of the rare cases I could say. So, so some of our listeners uh, may have to be a little careful in what they see there with it. But the whole story really shows very effectively the seduction of pagan religion and how it can seem so natural. I don't mean natural just like connected to the earth, but so natural to our carnality that um, they they can be very adept at making Christianity seem very artificial and um, they can frustrate a lot of the beauty of Christianity with their arguments. And I feel that that is coming. But that movie actually shows the dark side. And uh, I wonder sometimes if there's a wicker man waiting for every one of us uh, out there uh, when this day comes. They're very now just quietly being light workers out there doing their thing. But they're slowly building their wicker man. And as we see the Burning Man festivals that go on each year out in the desert, we know our society is being prepped for this kind of thing. And me personally, I don't think it's going to be the Islamic menace that ends humanity in the Judeo-Christian world, I think it's activities like this that in the long haul are going to pose a greater threat. Um, and I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Burton, for spending this time with us here at FutureQuake. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, we will look forward to staying in touch with you in the future. We're back at FutureQuake with Dr. Future. And Tom... I can't read that other one. Shoot. Bionic. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Uh... Tom, what do you think about uh, our discussion? I'll tell Brother you, man. Judd. I'll tell you, it's cool. It's it's uh, it's actually opened up all sorts of thoughts and possibilities in my mind. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm very interested in is just how uh, how people thought about what they wrote mm-hmm. when they wrote it in the Bible. I think that's a real key. And you know, mm-hmm. he gets into that. You know, into the anthro- yeah. anthropology and this is what the societies were thinking and right. you know, all that stuff. So they're zeitgeist. Yep. Yeah, no, you know, zeitgeist. I don't if, like zeitgeist. If we ever had a uh, future quake slumber party, he mm-hmm. would be an interesting guest to have on. Like we had like an overnight recording, and that'd know? be cool. Yeah, you know, just have six hours with. We Jed should Burton. do like a futurian conference, and then just invite all the people that we thought would be cool, and then yeah, we just one. have money would be the only thing. Well, pay people Pyro? to come here, unless people are like Woodstock, they just come out and like waller in the mud and stuff like that. Yeah, and I'd be the wavy gravy. <laughs> Of the group. Any other thoughts about uh, what he had to say about uh, um, paganism and things? You or? know, I thought what was interesting is you kind of you kind of picued his interest with some of your comments about. Uh, you think what's so? your name? Yeah. Well, okay. I was afraid he's legitimate. Unlike me, he actually studies things and has knowledge. Mm-hmm. I was afraid he was going to like go. No, man. He was like Revelation that, that really uh, that really spun him up a little bit. I think you think so, huh? Let's go home and probably think about it. Write it a book may, on it, not credit you. It may. <laughs> Just kidding. He wouldn't. Yeah, no. He's he a made good me. Guy. He he made me feel better though, because he may have just been nice to me by saying that, but it made me feel like the. No, I think it was legit, that. man. Yeah, Judd's legit. Yeah, oh, Judd he needs is. to move here, man. He needs to get a job teaching in Nashville. There you go. As well as all of our Futurians. Him and, and him includes and the ones in Cape Town and yeah, everywhere else. Mike Philippines. And, yeah, Mike Kaiser. Nate in Japan. Just, yeah. 
yeah. the, the bros in Amsterdam there. Yeah, yeah. We got friends in the Philippines. Yeah. And all parts. Hong we, Kong. Yeah. We got a lot of them in uh, New Zealand. Friends in New Zealand. And I'd love to Amsterdam. go to New Zealand, man. You know? Yeah. Go you see, see that Chuck guy burn that car? Uh, no. This dude. This dude said he used to work for the head of the the New Zealand yeah. National Bank or something, and he burned a car in a yeah. burned a car in the middle of a crowded shopping mall. Okay. No, I'm just that protest one. It. Well, um, before we conclude here, I just want to thank somebody. Um, I want to thank Brother Dean and his family. They made a donation uh, to us uh, together. That appreciate and it'll help us with some more expenses. And I want to also thank. Um, uh, Jan in Tennessee, and also Michael in Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe you all are the last purchasers of the two book set hmm. with um, Judge Napolitano's book and also um, um, our friend Andrew Hoffman's book. They are gone. Fini. I mm-hmm. took it down off the website. Um, they're probably worth thousands of dollars more now. It's interesting. I was at were. a Bible study last night, and that became a real topic of conversation. Really, like burning them, or they have no, no, no. Like, man, I really want to get those. Well, it's one of those regrets. Maybe at the end of the millennium, we may run that again, or something like that. But uh, someone who's not running is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it, buddy. For shizzle. Had a full show here. Yep. Uh, come back next week for Brother Tom and I in Pyro, who's in the studio here mm-hmm. with us. And uh, we love you all. It looks like crazy things happening in Europe and Israel right now. Mm-hmm. Keep praying that God would take care of all of the innocent people and people of goodwill in right. all of those countries. Word everywhere. that. And uh, until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake.